0: Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. So, are you interested to understand more about the shift of Bitcoin mining into North America? Historically, the industry has been dominated by China. John Lee Quigley wrote this report for Compass Mining. Now, he has since left Compass Mining and independent consulting and writing now, but we talk about the report and give you some insight into the dynamics going on here around why it's changing now the mining equipment upgrade cycle capital market access regulatory certainty as well as potential downsides of this shift this show is brought to you by swan bitcoin swan is the best way to accumulate bitcoin with automatic recurring buys and instant buys don't be one of those people trying to time the tops and the bottoms that's no way to live just set up your automated stacking plan and you don't have to worry swan support automatic recurring buys and they also support smash buys. So it's a fast setup and it's cheap to automate your stacking. Especially for US customers, you can set up your ACH. The fee includes the pull from your bank account, buying Bitcoin and withdrawing to your cold storage. There's a focus on education and content as well. Swan are Bitcoin only and there's no confusion with altcoins. This is a great place to send your pre-coiner and new coiner friends. Swan is also available internationally, so you can sign up and wire funds in that way also. So go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera and set up your stacking plan. Do you like the idea of Bitcoin DeFi? Lend at HODLHODL is this. It's a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend out stable coins or borrow against your Bitcoin globally and anonymously. So if you've got stable coins like USDT, you can earn extra income. There's an average of 25% APR. On the other hand, if you've got Bitcoin and you need some fiat liquidity, well, lend at HODLHODL can help you out with this. And the best part is you still hold one key in the two of three multi-sig controlling your Bitcoin, Hodl Hodl does not hold your funds. You can also confirm there's no rehypothecation. So this is peer-to-peer lending and borrowing directly between users. So go to the platform, set up your terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you interested to get involved with Bitcoin mining? It's really popular right now and compassmining.io are helping the everyday person get started with mining. The everyday person might not have contacts on where to buy their ASICs or which hosting facility to get a good electricity rate. Well, with Compass, they are doing some of that hard work for you. They've vetted some of the suppliers and the hosting facilities for you. So you can choose an ASIC, you can select a hosting facility, you join a mining pool and you receive Bitcoin. So you can buy that miner and it just allows you to get started without needing advanced technical knowledge. So you can go and sign up at compassmining.io to get started mining Bitcoin today. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, Stefan. How's it going? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, man. I've, you've done some great work on this report for Compass Mining. And I thought, oh, look, it's a good time to get you back on and talk about the mining industry and where it's come from and where it's going as well. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about uh, what you were doing with this report?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad you you enjoyed it. Um so just to give a bit of a background Compass Mining launched their two-sided marketplace back in I think it was around October 2020 and obviously it's grown a lot and become a huge success since then um but around the time of the launch we also wanted to start a research initiative called the Bitcoin Mining Index to give some more insights and information to Bitcoin miners about the um, about different regions where they could mine. And we started off the first two research reports. The first one was on Russia. second one was on Kazakhstan. We spoke to industry professionals in both these regions and put the report together. It took us about a month or two, each report. And by the time we'd finished that report, we kind of got a good idea of how, how the how the research process worked with speaking industry professionals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But by the time it was finishing those um North America and Bitcoin mining was just becoming a bigger and bigger topic. And um obviously we turned our our attention to to the North American region. But when we turned our um attention to the North American region, it also turned out that this was gonna be a completely different beasts than Russia and Kazakhstan obviously the region's huge there's a huge variety in uh, jurisdictions across the the country and um, yeah then we then we we set out on what would turn out to be a five six month uh, research report speaking to the biggest industry professionals in North America trying to get as comprehensive as we could Information on the energy market in the country, how hardware, how sourcing hardware was changing for Bitcoin miners in North America. Um, also, looking at the regulatory environment, the capital markets, what role they played. So, yeah, they, it turned out to be a monster report. And anybody listening, I would certainly recommend checking it out.
0: Yeah, excellent. And so, one of the difficulties with this is. When people are new, they just think of it all as one thing, right? Mining pools and miners, and they're all the same. Well, no, they're not. They're actually distinct entities, and they're not all public-facing, or they're not all fully open about all that, and maybe that's for good reason. So was that part of the difficulty then, that you had to sort of go around and research and try to figure out who was open to speaking more
1: forthright and others who were more, let's say, a
0: little bit more private?
1: Um, yeah, so... What I would say is one of the reasons we were able to carry out this report is prior to launching the Compass marketplace, um, it was carrying out the, the hashray mining podcast mining podcast for, for a long long time and um, corresponding very closely with, with a lot of the biggest Western miners and uh, managed to build some, some close close relationships with them. Um, so that really gave us the the access the tools and the resources to be able to carry out the research without those connections research simply wouldn't have been been possible and um, in terms of like some of the mining industry being secretive blah 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 um yeah we, we, we've seen that a lot in in China because the the jurisdiction was more opaque from, where it stood in the eyes of the law. So a lot of mining centers used to pose as, as cloud uh, cloud computing centers, or you might see um, a group of maybe a, f- a number of maybe five data centers, and one of them will be a normal data center. So if inspectors came, they'd show them this one, and the rest will be crypto mining centers. <laughs> um, but when it comes to Western miners, we're seeing, we're seeing uh, a completely different approach. The companies are trying to be more transparent, um more in line with, with regulation. Um for North American mining pools, we're seeing we're seeing them KYC the addresses of their of their connected of their connected miners. And um yeah there's definitely there's definitely a big, big shift compared to compared to what what mining looked like in China a few years ago.
0: Yeah, very good insight there. And so let's talk a little bit about where we came from. And now it seems that it's there's a lot of mining shifting into North America. But I guess just to set the scene for listeners out there, what was it like and why did so much of the industry in terms of Bitcoin mining start off in China? What were some of the advantages that China had as a jurisdiction for Bitcoin mining years ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly... Um... An interesting background story and back in the, the first the first ASIC for Bitcoin mining came on the scene around 2013 If you think what the Bitcoin market looked like back at that time it was it was completely different um, different market than it is today the asset class was maybe 10 10 billion or under in terms of total market cap the block rewards available to miner much much lower than they are today um, as a result, what happened was, it was um, the the initial manufacturers obviously set up in China. They they had they were close to to um, uh, fabricators such as TSMC, Samsung, etc. Back in the early years, it was obviously a very very high risk venture. Um, Bitcoin mining. And we've seen the propensity from Chinese miners to be willing to take this risk. And what that gradually evolved into and what we're seeing today is a more institutionalized um, market. Um, in, the, in the early years of, of Bitcoin mining, hardware life cycles were super quick. Chips were um, innovating and improving and becoming smaller um, at a much greater pace than they are today. And as a result, um, the um, hardware that manufacturers was releasing had much shorter life cycles, but with the longer life cycles, now we're seeing hardware having a greater uh, life cycle, more hardware is operating outside of China. It's becoming um, more of a, the margins are like tighter. So we're just essentially seeing a transition from an extremely high risk opaque industry to one that is more transparent institutionalized and um yeah hopefully going to be better and more decentralized for the bitcoin network as well
0: yeah really interesting and so just to touch on that hardware life cycle point so i guess it's saying that in the earlier days the technology was not at operating at the human limit right in terms of like nanometers and things like that so it was more important to be close to where the hardware was being made because you were constantly upgrading. And now it's more like that hardware that you get, it will last longer. It might be three or five years, something in that range, where that you buy this machine and it will be generally profitable for you to mine with that. Whereas historically, you had to upgrade really quickly because of how quickly the technology was improving such that if you had this old miner, it was no, it was not competitive would you say that's yeah, basically what was going on there
1: for sure and this also played a huge role in keeping the dominance in China because um personal business relationships play such a huge role in how how Chinese business is conducted they have a term called guanxi which is the the personal relationships you develop within the country and and the role they play and um because essentially mining miners have always scrambled to to get as much hardware as they can. So there's like this insatiable appetite for hardware and a limited supply. And when hardware life cycles were, were short, every new batch or new innovation that came out, it often made the old generation obsolete and Chinese miners would capture the biggest share of the of the new generation coming on the market. And this would also allow them to deploy their hardware at, in extremely attractive conditions, because the difficulty level would would not have adjusted yet to reflect this new powerful hardware coming on the market. So these miners would, would get these huge margins. And then by the time that the rest of the world could get their hands on this hardware, which would take much longer, um, yeah, the, the conditions for mining would be, would be far less profitable. And um, also in the report as well, we were covering... What the what the state of affairs looked like for say an American miner looking to import hardware from say 2013 to 2015 compared to the uh, the current day, and it's it's pretty yeah it's pretty ridiculous hearing what they were doing in 2013 to 2015. Like institutions would just be sending money to some random Chinese company, hoping that they deliver what they said they were going to deliver. Then they deliver it to a different place than. Than what the customer requested and blah blah blah. Uh, so it was obviously, as you can see from that scenario, it is it is clearly unfavorable to an ins- institution getting getting involved. And it's it like starkly differs what we're seeing today with publicly listed entities such as um, eBang and Canon, Bitmain and MicroBT also looking to go public. By going public, they're going to have to adhere to high professional standards and they will need to, um, yeah, the, the the level of professionalism will be far, far greater.
0: Yeah, interesting point there. And I recall, this is maybe this is more like an anecdotal story or a rumor that was a very common one, was this rumor that some of the manufacturing <laughs> would basically mine on the machine that customers had bought first before sending it out to them because just because of how much more profitable it was to be first to mine... With this new equipment right that was, yeah. was that your experience or that's you would have heard that story as well right
1: i mean yeah of course everybody says uh, yeah uh bitman will like roi your equipment before <laughs> before it gets to you just make sure it's running okay but obviously yeah you can't uh, you can't say for sure but that's um that's definitely definitely what is believed to be the case <laughs> <laughs>
0: and because at that time, time was of the essence, right? Especially in those days, it was all about getting that new equipment and plugging it in. Because every extra day or week that it took for it to ship to you, it was a massive loss, or so just, I mean, it was massive foregone uh, opportunity there. So,
1: yeah, I mean, as well, why do these, <clears throat> why do the manufacturers even sell these equipment? They're their money making machines. So when you consider that, you're you're entering. You're you're thinking in in into in a new angle, and why do they sell these machines? Well, they can sell these machines at a huge uh, premium to what what they can generate as well, because in in hot market conditions, um, retail miners have been shown that they will <clears throat> they will um they will buy at enormous enormously long payback periods, you know, so. In the early days, for sure, the manufacturers were were getting the best of both worlds. They were able to mine under extremely profitable conditions, <clears throat> supposedly or allegedly, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and then uh, sell on their hardware at extremely um, high premiums to 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 their value as well.
0: Yeah. And the other difficulty, in fairness, part of that is because it was such a boom and bust industry, right? We've seen these rises and falls in the price, which in turn impact the profitability of the different machines. And so, what seems to be a funny trend that we saw as well is that because of the massive price run up that we saw from, you know, 3,000 in March 2020 up to at the top around 60K recently, what we were seeing was a lot of old machines were now becoming profitable again, where previously they weren't.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like efficient miners will will always set up under attractive conditions. They'll they'll know what their input costs are. They'll have established great relationships with the manufacturers, so they'll um they won't they won't be overpaying for hardware. Because um, yeah, the manufacturers will treat their their biggest and most reliable customers uh, favorably, but in heated market conditions, like on the on the secondary market and for retail miners, you're gonna see them pay enormous enormous prices for for hardware. And then when when things turn, what naturally happens is some of these um miners enter into the, the red red territory, they can't make back the money to ROI on their hardware <clears throat> and they'll look to resell it. And who's gonna who's gonna be the, the natural people picking up those those miners? It's gonna be the the efficient miners who've who've got extremely low electricity costs and they'll be able to pick up the hardware for for pennies on the dollar. So yeah, it's like the it's like the um the mining cycle. It's it's almost like a leveraged Bitcoin cycle.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Hey, when you think about it. And basically if you can play that game well, it can be extremely profitable. But on the downside, if you don't play it well, you can lose a lot of money too. So
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And yeah, a lot of people when they first start to uh get exposure to cryptocurrencies and they look in- into mining and they're so eager to deploy some capital and uh they don't they don't realize that oh maybe the figures look good right now but how how will the figures look if difficulty moves this way or if price moves this way like how vulnerable are they to to price declines and how likely is it that their hardware at that the capital invested is going to pay off um yeah if price declines by that much and it's also it's also an opportunity cost as well because that, um, that money can can go into investing in, in Bitcoin or other assets.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Because you really have to think about all these different factors. You have to think, it's a speculation game, right? You're playing this uh, speculation of saying, where do I think the price is going to be in one year or two years from now? Where do I think the difficulty is going to be and, and the hash rate going to be in, in a couple of years from now? Where do I think the technology is going to be in a couple of years from now in terms of Bitcoin mining equipment? And then, can I source cheap power and get good certainty on that as well as opposed to historically where if you couldn't do that you were at the whim of your energy provider who might do the the rug pull and give you initially a good deal and then later do the rug pull and now you're you're left with the miner but no power or no cheap power and so i guess that's the these are the things that miners have to think about
1: yeah absolutely and um and that just just naturally shows who the the strongest players from in terms of pure play bitcoin mining operations who the strongest players are they're those that can can secure the lowest possible um operating costs for the longest term possible plus have their capex as as low as possible and yeah that's that's one of the the reasons we've seen such um huge growth in in the North american mining industry it's in in certain states texas particularly is attractive it's offered the opportunity for miners to to secure extremely attractive electricity prices and it doesn't seem like at least to a lesser degree it's not as subject to being rug pulled as, as you say as in money like in some regions in north america of course there is there is that risk but miners can can establish themselves in in states which are more favorable to being able to keep the the rates low for for a long long time
0: right yeah and so yeah that gets into this whole transition over to the north american bitcoin mining market that's growing so historically china might have been if you aggregated it might have been something like 60 maybe even 65 percent of the network's hash rate and so that was one of the areas where the critics would throw barbs and say, oh, look, see, it's centralized into China. Even if it was different pools and different miners, they would say, oh, see, look. And now, obviously, with what's going on in China, it seems that that number is obviously coming down a lot. If you had to guess or do you have like a rough idea, what kind of percentages of, what percentage of Bitcoin's hash rate would you say is coming out of North America now or even the
1: USA? Um. I'm not. I actually. I wouldn't have any figures myself, but I did see the Cambridge put out some estimates for April twenty twenty one, and the figures for China were already radically um, lower. And that's before even the um before the recent crackdown. Yeah. yeah before the com- comments came from the the high level high level politicians. Um, yeah, I believe one one person was there, the the right hand man to the the president um yeah led a committee to to essentially pretty much outlaw the the activity of bitcoin mining and yeah since then we've just seen an absolute flood of miners come out of countries so yeah i don't i don't know what the figure is but i'd be super interested to see it and i think it's probably going to be super low especially compared to historical levels
0: right yeah yeah and so that also brings up this whole idea of certainty. So jurisdictional certainty or regime certainty. So I think that's potentially one of the factors, and you outlined this in the report, where maybe historically it was more important to be close to getting the new hardware soon. Now it seems like it's more important to have regulatory certainty or regime certainty. So what are some of the factors that go into that? Why is that?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. And... um... Yeah, to be honest, the way I anticipated it happening was I wasn't expecting such a harsh stance from the Chinese government so quickly to catalyze such a flood out of the country into the US. And I was expecting it to have a huge share for a long time and hash rate gradually transition over to north america as a result of this jurisdictional certainty and um, <clears throat> other factors as well and this jurisdictional certainty is like it's legal systems that western western sorry excuse me it's legal systems that westerners are comfortable with it's um capital markets that they're comfortable with the regulations around and it, it's essentially a, just a different environment that Westerners are more comfortable establishing their operations in. And of course, it won't be the number one, North America won't be the number one choice for every miner that wants to migrate. Um, some will be able to, will be more comfortable setting up in Russia, Kazakhstan, maybe Iran. Maybe they, they have connections or circumstances in these regions that allow them to set up more favorably but if you think that you're if you're a western businessman a western institution and you're looking to set up a business that can operate for decades profitably um north america is going to be a strong candidate because it's it's legal systems and its regulation have have stood the the test of time and as the leading economy in the world so there's there's a lot of fa- favorable factors there and it's uh, it also another thing that shouldn't be um shouldn't be forgotten is it has has abundant power. Um sourcing electricity can be tricky in in a lot of states but there's definitely a lot of opportunities to also source low-cost power for the long run.
0: Okay, so digging into the US energy market, why is it that places like Texas uh, are more attractive than others.
1: Yeah, so one of the interesting things about the Texas and the ARCOC grid in Texas is the ability for miners to participate in demand response programs and um, radically reduce their electricity rates as a result of this. So miners can already um, secure quite attractive Um, base electricity rates in the region already but the ability to participate in these demand response programs gives them the possibility to um, reduce these even further and essentially what happens with these demand response programs is miners um, when they meet certain requirements can communicate with the grid and they can shut off in times of peak demand and then the grid has um, supply that I can allocate elsewhere and yeah those that participate in these programs can be heavily compensated as a result and this will reduce their average electricity price
0: over the course of the year back to the show after a word for the sponsors cypher grid is a new product coming from cyphersafe.io this is a metal backup seed product for your Bitcoin seed your 24 words so it's got privacy by default. It's two plates and they're facing each other and you stamp in those words. That's normally four tiles per word. You get a tamper evidence seal and an automatic center punch to do the stamping. You can also lock this one with a padlock. And just like all CypherSafe products, it's made from stainless steel and it's fireproof, rustproof and waterproof. So don't just rely on that piece of paper you get with your hardware wallet. Use a metal product for this. Go to CipherSafe.io and use the code Levera to get a discount. And speaking of security, get the Cold Card, my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet from CoinKite.com. The Cold Card is an excellent Bitcoin hardware wallet and it's a great step for you to upgrade your security if, say, you're on a phone wallet or maybe you've left your coins on the exchange. Well, it's time to learn how to use a Cold Card. Cold Card can be used with Spectre or Sparrow or Electrum. And so Spectre and Sparrow are some really easy ones. So if you're one of those people out there who's a little bit worried about using a cold card, maybe you're on a Trezor or a Ledger, well, cold card is a great one to try and improve your level. I did an episode recently with NVK as well, where we talked through some of the key considerations as well. Cold card can be used air-gapped. You can use it with a micro SD card. So there's lots of excellent features. Cold card is available at coinkite.com and use the code LAVERA to get a discount. And finally, Unchained Capital. They've got a new concierge onboarding program to help you get started and get set up with multi-signature security. So there's just a need to upgrade our security beyond custodians and potentially even single-signature wallets. When you move into a multi-signature world, now you're taking away single points of failure. You might have, say, a cold card and a treasure, and you can bring those and set up a vault with Unchained. And in doing so, now you're not as reliant on one single hardware wallet you're not exposed to that single point of failure so unchained have collaborative custody you hold two keys they hold one they can help you get set up with the concierge team it's personal one-to-one guidance you get hardware wallets shipped to you and you get video calls to set you up and get you uh, covering everything you need to know about bitcoin security so once you're set up with Unchained, they've also got other services like buying and selling Bitcoin, Bitcoin retirement accounts, and Bitcoin-backed loans. Go to unchained-capital.com concierge and get $50 off with the code Levera. Back to the show. Right, yeah. And so for listeners, ERCOT means Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And so, yeah, as you were saying, this allows, let's say, in, under a time of stress that they need power for people to... You know, stay warm in winter or something like that the bitcoin miner can offer to basically turn off and still receive some income while the grid is shunting and giving that power over to the people who need it for to stay warm in winter or something like that right
1: yeah exactly so the grid is constantly trying to maintain maintain a state of supply meeting demand and if demand goes above supply or say supply drops off and can't match demand then these um, demand response programs pl- play a huge role in um, catering to the, to this mismatch.
0: So thinking of then about places like say New York, uh, upstate New York as well. So that's another area uh, that you hi- highlighted as well. So what's what's the deal there? Why is that an attractive region?
1: So in upstate New York, historically there's been um, some municipals That have been able to that have have an abundance of hydropower and have given the possibility for businesses securing this power to get really um really low rates. However, um at the moment these municipalities have a moratorium on power requests coming in. So upstate New York really isn't as friendly towards Bitcoin miners as it um used to be and another factor to take into consideration is the political stance of Texas versus New York so New York is largely a democratic state Texas is largely a republican state it just means that in terms of running a bitcoin mining operation um you're going to face a higher higher risk that some entities will will give you political backlash for the environmental concerns regarding regarding your activity if you operate in New York compared to compared to Texas. So that's another that's another um factor to take into consideration. And it just highlights that every jurisdiction is different in um in North America and it's one of the reasons that Texas has emerged as an extremely attractive one. Because it's offered miners the ability to run at a low political risk, um, secure extremely attractive electricity rates, um, get into a state with abundance of a power, and also participate in demand response programs to reduce their electricity rate even further.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely a good point there around the politicization. And definitely, we are seeing conversations about this even now with even things like Bitcoin Mining Council and the supposed ESG concerns. Now, it might also be interesting to touch on how some of the more sophisticated Bitcoin miners might be trying to see themselves as collaborating with the grid a little bit more. And I think that kind of comes into the point you were saying around demand response as well. So I think some Bitcoin miners have really tried to help outline, hey, we're helping here we're actually positive because we are helping uh certain uh forms of power or certain um power projects might be more feasible now with bitcoin mining there as the quote unquote plug factor because some there might be some stranded energy uh that is hard to transport and yet uh there's not really a big town there to use all the energy uh but then the bitcoin miner can come in and say well hey we can come in and be that plug factor for you. We can use up that additional energy for you, and then offer to turn off when you need us to. And in doing so, sort of help that uh, project become viable where previously it might not have been.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really interesting point, and it's been raised a lot. Is that um, it doesn't really matter where the Bitcoin mine is located; they can they can. Like if you're a normal business, there's huge advantages to say operating in a city or close to your customers or whatnot. But a Bitcoin mine can go close to these regions that maybe have an excess of power being produced and they can provide a constant load response. And this can potentially improve the financial conditions of the power producer and allow them to build out further transmissions infrastructure um and also also have this um have this reliability of of a constant of a constant load there
0: yeah yeah so maybe that is another way that the industry goes to make it more palatable for the rest of society to sort of get along with it but of course some of these points are maybe a little bit more technical or a little bit more involved and they won't just be like a three-word slogan that people can just repeat and whatever yeah but
1: i mean it's it's definitely um an argument that that pro pro bitcoiners bring up a lot is that oh bitcoin can can just move into where wherever there is an excess of renewable energy and it's kind of like one of your your go to go to arguments for for pro bitcoiners but yeah i believe the the reality is going to be quite nuanced and and different from from region to region and maybe it's not as as clear cut as that but yeah, there's no, there is no doubt that Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining in particular has um, attractive, attractive properties in that it can, it can go and provide a, a constant, a constant load.
0: Yeah, and the other important point is with the US, the capital markets. So there's a lot of funding available. So uh, what's the, what are the pros and cons there of getting access to this huge pool of capital in North America? Whew, I mean,
1: it seems to to only pros, to be honest. Um, like it's extremely attractive for for any any uh, mining related company to have been publicly listed over the past year. They would have seen their um their multiples go to enormous enormous amounts. Um, yeah, we did we did some analysis in the report looking at the their the value per hash rate of uh, various publicly listed mining companies and yeah just increased hugely by huge multiples during the the latest bull run and mining publicly listed mining companies essentially acted as a leveraged play on bitcoin during that bull run and it just offers a lot a lot of benefits to to my to um the companies that are publicly listed during these these bull runs because their their um, share value increases so much, and this gives them leverage to <clears throat> expand their their infrastructure. And we've seen that with Argo Blockchain co- coming to a share purchase ag- deal with a New York company to purchase um, land in Texas and build out a facility there. And we also seen several other companies um, use their their high share value to execute purchase agreements as well.
0: Yeah, so essentially being part of that US regulatory regime, while you do have to do some reporting costs and things, ultimately you're getting access to all this capital that's out there and that can then be used to fund your operations and pl- to turn that in the, in the service of Bitcoin by making the Bitcoin network more secure. So that's certainly an important factor. Maybe the downside, I guess, is if everything becomes more like regulated, then maybe it it might theoretically in the future become more easy to capture Bitcoin and stop, say, or start the introduction of things that we don't want to see, things like white lists or blacklists of who you're allowed to send transactions to and supposedly uh, if the miners were to be forced to into that kind of arrangement. Uh, but yeah. there is a countervailing factor as well where, let's say, the fact that it's getting distributed more and more around the world, right?
1: Yeah, there definitely is some downsides to publicly listing as well. Um, there's gonna be more costs associated with accounting, financial reporting requirements, and plus you need to be you need to be transparent about everything you do. So let's say if if some publicly listed mining company comes up with some huge innovation that can radically reduce their their costs in some way, well they're gonna they're gonna have to disclose that um whereas a private company could just keep it under the hood for forever pretty much and um the other factor is maybe you're more liable to to lawsuits and you're more yeah you're more in the public light and there's more risk legally operating as a public company
0: mm, yeah yeah so yeah definitely pros and cons there uh, but on the whole seems
1: like the pros maybe outweighs the
0: cons outweigh it yeah yeah and uh, yeah, and just the broader point around how it hash rate is moving all around the world, right? It's not just going into North America, into USA. It's going, as you said, into Europe, into Russia, into other places. Um, so I think that probably on net and especially as the hash rate rises, it just becomes harder and harder for anybody to try and uh, try and attack the network over time.
1: Well, yeah, in terms of attacking the network, you're really facing a big task because any hardware that comes out, essentially is gobbled up by miners right maybe the biggest risk we face is if all the the hardware if the majority of the hardware got concentrated within a small region and then some sort of government authorities or powers in that regard try to seize the hardware or something along the lines of that but yeah the the, i'm I'm sure the, the network will will adjust to to such an attack um yeah just Thinking of attacks on the Bitcoin network, it seems like a a hard, hard task for for even a collection of states to to pull off. Yeah, yeah.
0: Although I guess just for the sake of being devil's advocate, you could say, all right, all these miners in the USA—they're public, they're regulated, they're known people. What if the political environment turns and say the U.S. government says we're mandating that because you're all regular, you're all under the regulated tent now, you need to subscribe to our whitelisting and blacklisting service where we say you may send to this address and this and maybe that would be an angle uh, now that everyone's inside the regulated tent possibly.
1: Yeah definitely that's a good point I'd be more concerned about if they a huge amount of the hardware migrated to North America and then they tried to do some sort of seize assets thing and take all the hardware Um, I'm not really sure how it will play out in that regard whether you would need to shift to maybe a different mining algorithm to make that hardware redundant, if it was known that the US government was trying to do an attack to to um build a longer chain and then take control that way, that would that would definitely be um a scary attack. But in terms of whitelisting and blacklisting, I think it's always the case that as long as there's one mining pool willing to add transactions with complete censorship resistance, then that transaction will will eventually be added. It'll just take a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. And just to explain
0: for listeners there, so what we're referring to there is when you send your transaction on the Bitcoin network, and obviously we're anticipating longer longer term over time, these will be very high value transactions between say banks uh, because number is going up, right? And so what would theoretically happen if if a lot of the miners were trying to censor a certain transaction, then one of the censorship resistant properties of Bitcoin is that, it could be that person could be offering a higher fee. And that fee would be an incentive for a miner somewhere around the world, a quote unquote good miner who wants to promote the censorship resistant values would have an incentive then to take that transaction and put it into their block as opposed to some of the other miners, let's say hypothetically, who had been legally mandated not to accept this transaction from A to B, that kind of thing. But it, it, there's a lot of different complicated scenarios here because even to mandate that kind of thing, it would require that all the transactions are identifiable from between identifiable parties, such that uh, a person could create a whitelist or a blacklist that is even practical. So it kind of depends on how much of how many of the coins are, I guess, all KYC'd and tracked and chain analyzed or chain surveilled. Uh, and so I guess it's a complicated story, and uh, there's going to be that push uh battle back and forth on how censorship resistant bitcoin should be right because some of us would argue look the whole value the whole point of bitcoin is you know inflation resistance and censorship resistance and so if you start to erode that then the value of bitcoin starts to go so i think it seems now that the industry is recognizing that and pushing that as well so even recently there was that whole um yeah uh, that there, there was that bitcoin miner who was uh, ofac compliant blocks in their in their block header and now recently they've taken that off and said no we want to support taproot and we're going to get rid of that yeah
1: yeah yeah it's definitely um an interesting interesting angle to consider is what would happen if if bitcoin mining continues to be institutionalized and then these institutions are under the watch of a large regulatory body and they attempt to introduce this whitelisting, backlisting um, mechanisms. Yeah, it's it's certainly it certainly is is a risk to a risk to consider and something to be to be mindful of. Yeah. But I think the other point as
0: well, and we we were talking about this earlier, is that it's not just one country. There are many countries all over the world. And they're not necessarily all going to agree on what the white list and the black list should be. And so even if the USA came out doing this, that might end up actually in practice, it might just end up harming US Bitcoin miners, but helping Russian Bitcoin miners or Kazakhstan Bitcoin miners or yeah. some other jurisdiction, because they might now get more fees because of all the people who have to pay for their transaction to get included inside a block.
1: I think one of the best things for Bitcoin is that the governments around the world can't agree. <laughs> if they could agree... Maybe Bitcoin would have been stopped a long, long time ago, but here we are. <laughs> exactly
0: right. So that's an interesting um, yeah. dynamic. But I think I, I count myself as an optimist. Uh, I think things are going to work out uh, in in that way longer term, uh, just because of the way the system is crafted and the way the incentives sort of work. Although you know, you have to you have to admit there's certain possibilities of bad outcomes that could ha- happen as well. Um,
1: yeah, I have my glass half full here as well, Stephen. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's it. Um, Another topic I wanted to chat with you about is uh, this whole idea of hash rate derivatives and hash rate tokens. So, in the report, you spell out this idea that some of the big mining pools, like Poolin and Binance, are starting to you know explore these ideas, whereas potentially in the US or maybe elsewhere in North America, it's not as much of a thing. Can you outline what this idea is? What What's the idea behind these hash rate and derivative tokens?
1: Yeah, so the financialization of mining has been a big topic for a few years. Um, what do I mean by that, the financialization of mining? It's essentially providing um, better tools and better services to miners for them to hedge their risk. Um, one of the biggest topics in that area has been how can we turn HashRay into a tradable token or something that trades on an exchange. And we've seen some rudimentary um applications of that so far. Um there's one website, the name is gone from me now where you can you can rent Hashray from different um algorithms. Nice hash or one of those? I can't remember. Yeah, I think I think it might be a nice hash, but um, yeah. Over over the past year, we've we've seen some companies really really start to push this idea um forward further. We've seen both Binance and Poolin launch tokens that are tied to hash rate. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I've looked into them, but I believe they they trade at huge premiums to actually the underlining the underlying value of hash rate, but. I guess as it relates to North America, the point I was trying to make in the report is that in jurisdictions outside of North America, they will be more have more propensity towards risk, and they will um, carry out more risky activities and experiment more. And as a result, a lot of people are going to end up being scammed, right? Whereas in North America, businesses are more careful to do things under the guidelines of a regulatory agency. So what's the natural result of this? It's like we see um, some innovation outside of North America, but we also see some people being scammed and frauded. But then eventually North America remains on the frontier of innovation because they have the biggest market, biggest economy in the world. So they eventually will come out with regulated products um, if, there, if there is a sustainable idea there. And I think it's, it's similar to the story of Bitcoin mining, right? Um, in the early years, North America was keeping its hands far away. Anybody that was doing Bitcoin mining was an extremely questionable activity. But only in the past few years has it gained huge legitimacy and seen a huge growth in North America and have North America been more willing to embrace it. We've seen institutions put it on their balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. But are we seeing institutions putting shit coins on their balance sheet? No, we're not. But in in other countries, of course, um, institutions are messing around with shit coins, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's kind of like a test of what, um, yeah, it's like experimenting outside of the US and then naturally a bigger product and a bigger market gets created in the US. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, also,
0: we haven't spoken much about Canada as well. So did you want to just outline a little bit of, you know, what's what's it look like in Canada, Bitcoin mining wise?
1: Yeah, so yeah, Canada has its own special chapter in the report for sure. And um, it's definitely very distinct from, from the US. It's a much more bureaucratic environment. And it kind of has the, the same relationship that I was outlining what other countries versus the U.S. Um, in Canada, there was there was huge growth in the Bitcoin mining industry long before there was in in the U.S. And um, many many companies with various cryptocurrency activities have listed on the Toronto Stock Venture Exchange. Um, but because of its its hugely bureaucratic environment and um, political environment. It's there's there's a lot of hurdles to to building large scale um, Bitcoin mining facilities in Canada. So Canada offers some attractive there's some attractive regions to to build profitable operations, but typically at a lower scale. Whereas in the US, it's more favorable to miners that have ambitions of huge uh, scale operations.
0: Mm, yeah, good point. Uh, and so. With the creation of the mining um, equipment as well, so mining mining machines, uh, there's this whole constraint that people are talking about with semiconductors, right? So this idea of uh, TSMC being one of the big dogs of that world, and uh, th- that there being a constraint there because of limitation of uh, the factories in Taiwan, but then also there is talk now. I think they have mentioned they're going to build one in Texas, and th- there are more. There's more talk about competition. Uh, coming into that semiconductor space. So I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts there on what the future of that looks like. Does it look like we're going to see more uh, more alternatives in terms of semiconductors, which in turn will then create um, more people who can create you know, Bitcoin mining equipment or the expansion of the current big players?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question for sure. And um, it seems that in terms of... Uh, factories like tsmc and stuff and tsmc samsung etc building facilities that could cater to bitcoin miners on north american soil we're we're a long long way from that yes we've seen um tsmc and i believe samsung um establish some north american facilities or begin developing but development is going to take a long process and then the first applications are going to be secured by say government and military uses etc so it looks like we're we're a long way from from uh, bitcoin mining um commercial use for the for these uh for these factories but yeah it's certainly promising in the long run that we're seeing more diversification um in terms of chip production and also you were you were uh, spot on when you said that uh, chip chip uh, supply constraint is is one of the one of the biggest constraints worldwide right now and it's not it's not just bitcoin miners that are scrambling for more chips um big tech companies are also trying to get their get their hands on these chips
0: yeah yeah and uh, i mean i'm hearing i've i was hearing stories of even car manufacturers struggling to get chips and having to take out features of their cars because the chips simply were not available at that time and they didn't want to just have the customers waiting for a year or two because by then it's a new car and all that so interesting trends and i mean we would like to see uh progress on that but of course it takes time and so that's that's just literally where we're at right now um so i'm curious as well do you have any thoughts rest of the world in terms of other places um africa or i don't know elsewhere in europe do you see Bitcoin mining operations coming there or are they just not really at the scale level yet
1: yeah I no I don't I don't see them being at the at the scale level yet I believe North, North America is going to be it's going to be the biggest U.S in particular um China's share is dwindling Russia and Kazakhstan are going to hold significant shares um Iceland will continue to have a share but in terms of, of other regions I'm not I'm not sh- yeah, I'm not not sure which region is gonna be significant or non-significant.
0: Yeah, still remains to be seen, hey? Yeah. So uh yeah, let's talk a little bit about your other work. Or what other stuff are you working on and or what have you have you got any other stuff uh, coming up that people can keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah, so I actually I ended up leaving compass mining after doing this report at the end of May. I've been in the in the industry for over four years now, working with various various clients doing um freelance writing work and since Stephen Compass Mining, I've, I've gone back to doing a lot of freelance writing work. And one of the main things I've been doing is helping a lot of um, companies with their newsletters. Um, so companies in various, providing various products or services, I help them get out a newsletter to their audience weekly, helps them build an audience, also helps them get um, an audience more comfortable with their brand. Um. Yeah, if you, can, if you can issue high quality insights to an audience that is relevant to your product or service, um, yeah, very, very few companies can do that. So it both helps build an audience, plus warms an audience to using your product or service. So that's been the focus for me recently.
0: Excellent. So yeah, really enjoyed chatting with you, John. Uh, where can listeners find you online or get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, if they want to get in touch with me, I'm pretty active on Twitter. They can follow me at Bitcoin Nomadic. Um, you can also connect me on LinkedIn. I'm not so active there. But um, yeah, feel, feel free to follow me on Twitter and DM me or tweet at me.
0: Excellent. Thanks, John.
1: Yeah, thanks, Stefan. It was a pleasure.
0: Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 295. Thanks, and I will see you in the Citadels.